Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The George Poo Show. I'm your host, George Poo. Today, we're talking about everything crypto. And the past week, oh man, so many things happened. We're inviting co-host and guest host Soham to join us. So Soham, uh, would you like to give us a brief rundown about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess everyone listening, uh, like uh, George said, my name is Soham. I'm a CPA by trade and I work as a consultant. So the crypto space is a little bit different for me, but happy to be the one that asks questions that I guess like people that don't know crypto would probably ask more slight. And then I guess Matt probably would love to like hear from you, the main star. Yeah, that's yeah absolutely. Quick background on me. I'm one of the co-founders of Atomic Finance. We work on building non-custodial tools for, for Bitcoiners, basically uh, kind of building DeFi uh, directly on Bitcoin. Um, been in the space since uh, 20, 2014 when my dad first introduced me to Bitcoin, actually. Yeah, my goodness, a rundown on this week. It feels like we've been in a Netflix movie uh, with everything that's been going on. Everyone absolutely knows the name SBF. Everyone knows that the word FTX. We have this interesting character, SBF, who is sitting there with the hedge fund Alameda and FTX. And my gosh, they both go bust. And we have contagion throughout the whole market. We have shit coins going down in value. My gosh, where do we start with here, George? Uh, <laughs> where do we start? Yeah, I think maybe let's bring it to the beginning. Like what caused FTX to go down? What was like the first strike that hit it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting, like everyone's talking about the past week, but Rome wasn't built in the day and the, you know, the Roman Empire didn't die overnight. What caused this? Like, what was the original thing that actually led to this? So if, if we recall back in, back in June, there was a, there was a large project in the kind of crypto sphere called Luna, if you guys remember. So there was kind of this big stablecoin project that was saying, Hey, you know what? We figured out how to do algorithmic, uh, algorithmic stablecoins and we figured out how to do this. And it grew to a, you know, a huge size. They were doing, you know, people were able to put their tokens into, into Luna and into UST and get 20% yield. And then it all comes crashing down. And you have all these big, you know, hedge funds, 3AC, um, even BlockFi was affected. Um, all these big funds that were affected by this kind of destruction in the market. And who was bailing them out? Well, FTX was, right? SBF comes in as the hero. Hey, BlockFi, we'll bail you out. Hey, um, you know, we'll bail out this company and this company. And then we find out, you know, so many months, months later that clearly, they were a little, you know, in this process of kind of bailing everybody out. They're a bit over leveraged. They had created their own token, FTT token. They had put it out there on the market and now they were lending customer funds. You're not supposed to do this as an exchange. You're not supposed to lend customer funds to a hedge fund, which is used for kind of very risky activity, lending customer funds over to Alameda, which are all backed by this FTT token. And so at some point, a line was crossed where SBF decided to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to take user funds to plug this hole in Alameda, his hedge fund that he created. And, you know, we, we saw Binance saw exactly what occurred with that. He saw, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw that they were over leveraged. He sold off all the FTT tokens and, you know, now you've got a $10 billion hole. So that's the TLDR, but there's, there's way more to dig into there. But my God, like all of this started in June and now, you know, it, now everything's unraveling. Amazing. Like, so Matt, tell us why FTX is able to move customer funds for a hedge fund. I mean, I, I guess it could also happen in like the traditional markets, but like, wouldn't that lend you to jail? It's funny. The One of the like uh, co-founders of PayPal was on a podcast uh, recently this week and he was saying, 
at a certain point in their in their company, they had six months of runway left, and they were told by their lawyers, "Do not use customer funds to extend your runway. That's an immediate go to jail card." These funds, these exchanges are uh, FTX US was supposed to be regulated in the United States. So, you, so you had you had really three parties involved. You had FTX US, you had FTX International, and you had Alameda. FTX US is supposed to be regulated in the United States. FTX International obviously is is under the uh, kind of regulatory oversight of the Bahamas, so no, obviously not the, not the same regu- regulatory oversight. But in their terms of use, they state, you know, we do not use customer funds for risky bets. We do not use customer funds. We do not lend them out. They explicitly said that. And yet what did they do? They did exactly that. They lent it out to Alameda. And so like clearly there's something going on that was illegal and was literal fraud that occurred with FTX. In terms of, you know, like the crypto space itself isn't really that well regulated, but this was actually like in their term sheet itself. Like, oh, like, yeah, we are not going to be using customer deposits for anything else, stuff like that. It was literally in their terms of service. Now, you know, they were headquarters, FTX International was headquartered in the Bahamas. Alameda, I'm not sure where they're, they're registered, but essentially, but, but Alameda is a hedge fund, right? So in a hedge fund, the expectation is that you're going to, there's going to be more risk. So hedge funds blow up every other day. (laughs) Um, but in exchange, that's a different matter. You know, you go to some, like, you go to any exchange and the expectation is that you're matching those funds one to one, right? So if mm-hmm. I put one Bitcoin onto an exchange, the expectation is that ex- that exchange is holding one Bitcoin for me. In fact, like cr- the CEO of Kraken came up with a, a really good point the other day. He's like, really funds on an exchange are a liability for that exchange, right? Because they don't get paid to hold them. Uh, and so clearly the authorities in the Bahamas we're not doing the proper regulatory oversight to say, hey, are these funds actually backed one to one? That's one piece of it. But but another piece is how can you actually be certain as a user when you're going to an exchange that these exchanges are actually holding those funds one to one? Like it's a black box at the end of the day. How do you how do you double check that? There's no lender of last resort that's going to come out and bail anybody out. You know, like in a, a bank, for example, you're you know, the bank is allowed to lend out as much as they want. In Canada, obviously there's a reserve ratio in the United States. You know, in the, in the reserve ratio in the United States is what, 10, 10%? Correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is, that, is that right, George? I'm actually not too sure. Probably, probably that. So my understanding is that the reserve ratio in the United States is like, you know, 10%. So you can put, so if I put $10 into the bank, they can land out 100, right? And the reserve ratio, I think, in Canada is even lower. So, but the thing is, exchanges aren't supposed to be doing that in crypto. Coinbase claims not to be doing that. Obviously, they say that they have a one-to-one ratio. So if you put one Bitcoin on a Coinbase, they are holding that in the background. But clearly, that wasn't going on. And clearly, they weren't doing any type of proof of reserves to prove that. And the Bahama authorities obviously weren't looking at that. But this begs another question about like, why are all these exchanges going offshore? Um, why are they all, you know, putting their funds elsewhere in order to be able to kind of play in this arena? Like, what, why are, why are they doing that? And I think it's, you know, mostly because of lack of regulatory clarity in the, in the United States. So that's one of the big problems, I think. Well, I guess you, you kind of bring up an interesting point. You know, how you said that, um, like, oh yeah, like it's in the Bahamas that where the company's registered. So if you're a U.S. citizen and you deposit money into like a FTX, does that money, like, uh, are you under FTX US, like that deposits, or are you legally required to be under like FTX, like international in the Bahamas? Yeah, I believe my understanding is that they, blo- so they blocked the United States. And here's an irony too. It's FT- FTX International was also blocked in Ontario, which is hilarious because the teacher's pension fund of Ontario invested yeah. in FTX, right? You probably, yeah, you probably million too, right? Like a crazy amount. 
Yeah, 95 million gone, wiped, yeah. you know? And so, so it was blocked in the United States and United States citizens were supposed to use FTX US instead. And so when all the debacle went down, if you guys remember, there, there was a situation there where, where SBF came out and said, Hey, everybody, you know what? FTX US is not connected to FTX International, is completely solvent. And, and yet what happened? All three of them go and file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States. That was a complete lie that occurred one day. And then the next day, they're all insolvent. And so it's clear that the boundaries were not in place between like something that was supposed to be a completely separate entity and for the United States and regulated in the United States versus versus the FT, FTX International, which was in the Bahamas. And I also wanted to bring up a good point, like Matt, I, I think in June, you said the Luna collapsed, I think in like one or two days. And FTX is supposed to be the legendary player in crypto collapsing like one or two days as well. So the collapsing time is actually very short here. So that happened. Do you think that will also happen to other big players like Binance, Coinbase, for example, like those who are quote unquote still standing? I know a lot of them are already impacted by the collapse of FTX. So do you think something like that's this would keep happening? Well, well, I think I don't think we've seen all the all the contagion, right? And you know, I, it was funny. Like I was sitting here last week, and you guys were probably sitting here as well, thinking like, okay, all this stuff has happened, and like, what is the effects of this going to be? So I was expecting some more stuff to come out. Like I was sitting here for, like Friday last week. George was like, hey, we should we should ch- talk about this, and I was like, wow, you know, there's going to be some more stuff that comes out. Well, some more stuff did come out. Like now we have G- Gemini and Genesis. You know, Genesis, like pause withdrawals, they say that they're simply a liquid, but they're solvent. And so, you know, we'll see if that's the case. Gemini Earn was impacted by FTX. But the, I think the, the big question is, are the big players going to be affected? Is Coinbase going to be affected? Is Binance? I think it's unlike, like, it, you know, it's unlikely that Binance or Coinbase in particular, but I think there are other players, you know, in the field that are going to be affected. We're still waiting to see BlockFi, for example. Everybody said back in June, BlockFi is affected by this. What happened with the Luna collapse because they were lending out to 3AC and others. Are they going to go down? If, if BlockFi goes down, Bitcoin's going to 10K, everybody. FTX came to the rescue. Well, now guess what? BlockFi is uh, apparently preparing for uh, filing for bankruptcy. And so I don't think we've seen all the contagion. And I think everybody's going out there and they're saying, hey, uh, you know, we're fine. We're okay. We're not affected by this. But that's that's a very likely thing to say to maintain confidence until everything comes crumbling down. So I don't think we've seen all the, the contagion risk yet, to be completely honest with you. I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts, George, on the, the current market and whether we're going to see more things happening here? Uh, I agree. I think I think the news are developing every time I refresh my Twitter speed. Uh, so uh, every time there's something new. So today, I, uh, Genesis was like, I guess, a shock. Well, not really a shock. But Genesis is so connected to so many different players and, and platforms, right? So I do know Circle Yield is depending on Genesis. So that's also like a, a path that just been hit. So their yield has now been, I think, 0%, which is not a great sign. And I think at the beginning of the year, it was 21%. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it was 21% to 30% a year AP, APY. So now it's crumbling down to zero. So um, the question is like, well, though, are those funds solvent, right? Like Circle is, quote unquote, a regulated company. So... I guess the question I will ask, like Matt, is that does regulation really help? Because, you know, Circle is a regulated company, I guess, regulating the Bahamas um, and also a little bit in, in the United States. But if you're putting your money into like, you know, Circle Yield, I guess there's like not really a promise that you can actually get those money back because it has plenty of connection to other players. Well, I think like what like you, you touched on something really important here, which I think is like lending in crypto. 
if you're talking about lending in the traditional financial world, we have a fractional reserve banking system. And that works fine because there's a lender of last resort, right? You've got the central bank that's able to bail out, you know, whatever banks, if, if, if there's a bank run that occurs, we all know that, you know, if you, everyone goes and takes their money out of the bank, there's not enough money. But the difference here is with something like Bitcoin or cryptos, there's no lender of last resort. If you're lending out Bitcoin and you're hoping to make yield on that and whoever you lent it to defaults on that loan, you better hope that the interest that you're getting from your other loans that you're, that you're, uh, Bitcoin that you're lending out, that that's going to make up for it because no one's going to bail you out. You know, Satoshi's not increasing the supply tomorrow to, to help you out. And so I don't know, like this begs the question of like, is, unsecured lending even viable for for the crypto markets yeah Sohan, what do you think about the question mm-hmm. i guess i probably want to ask matt like yeah exactly the question you asked like how would you answer that like in terms of yeah like when you're like loaning in the crypto market because as a consumer it's still your choice right like the whole decentralized like the whole reason for crypto was you know we do everything ourselves so yeah well i think i think there's a very big difference between unsecured lending and secured lending. And mm-hmm. then, because like, it seems to me that unsecured lending, you're going to continue to have blowups that occur. There's always someone who's chasing a larger yield that's willing to take more risk. You know, Alameda was sitting there offering, you know, 15% APY on, if you, for their program, if you uh, lent funds to them. And so like, to be honest, for something like Bitcoin, I don't even know if unsecured lending even makes sense because you know, no matter what you do, you can't price in the, the risk that's, that's coming from the idea that there's no lender of last resort. Now, I think secured lending is a different question because, okay, so say if I'm, you know, doing lending, like say if I'm doing a Bitcoin back loan, well, mm-hmm. Bitcoin's a pretty widespread asset. We know what that looks like in the market. We know what the potential drawdowns are. What's the maximum drawdown that you have from the all-time high to the low? Okay, well, you have, you can go down 80%, it can go down 90%. And so you have an expectation of how to deal with those liquidations. But what was occurring during this market was secured lending that was backed by tokens that are created out of thin air. You've got these different types of tokens that are being created. And a great example of this is what FTX did, right? They went and they created an exchange token called FTT. Right. What is the purpose of FTT? The purpose of FTT is to work as an exchange token and you can use it to earn yield on FTX and you can use it to reduce your fees. But then they're going and using that as collateral and loans. That's what Alameda was doing. And so when you do something like that, this is a this is a token. This is like if I create a company and I create a stock for it and then I'm out of thin air and I use that stock as collateral for a loan. That's like it's like. No one in their right mind in the traditional world is going to give me money. But but in crypto, this seems to have become a normal thing. But the thing is, as soon as there's a problem with FTX, as soon as there's any scare in the market, mm-hmm. you know, that token's going to zero and, and that's getting liquidated. So unsecured lending, I don't think makes any sense. Secured makes sense for well-established coins, like obviously Bitcoin's a great example. And then, but secure lending, I think we need to have a hard look at Let's assess the type of collateral we're using here, for God's sake, you know? <laughs> so I guess, like, what would, how would you want to structure it in terms of, like, secured lending? Because I know in, like, the traditional sense when it comes to lending, you know, you have, like, you grade a junk bond all the way up to, like, yeah, like a triple A, you know, in terms of, oh, this is a very good investment. That's where, like, the yield comes from. How about for, like, uh, the crypto space? Like, how would you kind of want that regulated in, like, a perfect world? Well, I think there's, it's an interesting thing because what has, uh, what is, so there's two questions there. It's like, how should secured lending be done? 
mm-hmm. in crypto in general. And then that's number one. And number two is, is the regulation piece. So yeah. how, how should secure lending be done? Well, I think lenders need to be taking a good look at the type of collateral that they're accepting. And crypto, obviously, like, you know, Bitcoin is king. And so if you're accepting Bitcoin as collateral, that, that's still fairly risky, right? But obviously is a much superior collateral than any anything else that you're going to touch. You might be able to accept Ethereum. You, you obviously can accept stablecoin, assuming that it doesn't, you know, those don't go to zero and collapse. I think it's really a question of how you're setting up those loans. But if you're setting those up in a, in a more, I guess, DeFi, decentralized finance environment, there's different expectations, right? So there's how, like, you know, what is the protocol that you're setting those up on? How are you doing, you know, the governance around those protocols, yada, yada, yada. And what's the security of those smart contracts look like? This is all being done on Ethereum today. There's alternatives that exist in, say, Bitcoin that, you know, uh, work on a, uh, a multi-sig system. So I think in general, like the DeFi in- industry has been kind of unaffected. So I think the optimal thing for secured lending is is to be in more of a DeFi environment um, and optimally use Bitcoin as collateral over over other ones. But I think the the regulatory thing is, you know, a lot of people have said recently that, um Part of the reason that all these exchanges were being created offshore is because there wasn't regulatory clarity of like, what is a security and what is um, a commodity, right? So if, FT- if FTX goes and creates a token, is that a security or a commodity? In my opinion, you know, I'm a, I like to say I, like I'm a Bitcoiner. Um, I would like to say Bitcoin maximalist. And so I, I don't believe these tokens should be created in the first place, to be completely honest with you. Um, but if we're looking at regulatory, like at least, at least go and get regulatory clarity and at least be clear what these are. But really what we should be pushing for is people to just hold their own coins, right? If you, if you hold your own Bitcoin, if you hold your own crypto, then you're not being exposed to the things like FTX. And I think this has been a, this has really been a, um, uh, something that's occurred recently, like a trend is everyone is taking their funds off of exchanges now, which I think is really, really important. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, like George, what, what do you think? Like, what, what do you think the framework should be for like, for, for lending, um, like in, in crypto and Bitcoin? Um, like how, how can we, how can we do better? Yeah, I, I can agree with you, Matt, in terms of like, it's super hard to regulate in this space. Um, I'm actually wondering, like, in terms of looking at regulation, like, is there any way actually through technical aspects that we can actually make lending safer? Like, can there be like a protocol or maybe there has been a protocol, just nobody uses it. Um, that actually makes lending in, you know, Web3 safe. Uh, I don't know if that's like actually possible. Do you know anything similar to this, Matt? Or Well, there, there is um like, okay, so if you look, go and look in DeFi and Ethereum, right? There's, and by the way, like there's lots of problems with DeFi Ethereum. I'm not saying it's perfect. It happened to have survived well. There's lots of hacks that have occurred. There's lots of shit coinery that occurs. FTT was created on Ethereum. So look, look there's lots of problems, but guess what? You know, for the most part, Ethereum DeFi, Alameda paid back their Ethereum DeFi loans before they paid back their other creditors. So, okay, there's, there's something that's working to a certain extent. There, there's lots of risk still, but something's working, working to a certain extent. So on Ethereum DeFi, you've got things like, um, Compound, for example, Compound Finance, or that I think is a good example of a company that has been creating money markets that are based on secured lending, right? So you've got different tokens. You've got wrapped Bitcoin, which is, that's custody Bitcoin. So obviously it's not the same as real Bitcoin. You've got Ethereum on there. You've got stable coins and they've created money markets that seem to have been working fairly well so far in terms of, okay, you need to over collateralize this loan, right? Um, 150%, um, or 200% over collateralized. 
and you're taking a loan in a stable coin or another type of coin. And so I think those type of markets have have worked fairly well. You've got examples in Bitcoin like HODL HODL that allows you to put in Bitcoin as collateral and you can get a loan in a stable coin. And so for the most part, these these type of protocols have worked worked fairly well. And the ones that broke down were really the ones that were just complete unsecured lending. So I think the part of the answer here is like we need to do secured lending in, in DeFi protocols and, and accept less shitcoin collaterals and focus more on the better assets. Like let's build more DeFi protocols, you know, that use Bitcoin as collateral. Cause I think that's where you can be sure that, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. I do want to switch our topic a little bit into the regulation and the um, public perception of crypto. I mean, I do know like the past week, you know, some, some people call it like the worst week of crypto, which I don't know if, they, uh, if that's the case, but anyways, let's say, assuming it's a worst week of crypto. I, and I think it's bad because like people don't really understand there's a difference between DeFi and centralized exchanges, right? And and the regulation, I guess, is going to come to both. And then the public perception of like skepticism and, you know, afraid that your money is going to be lost is still going to be applying to DeFi, right? So like, Matt, what do you think about the past week is going to be done for the crypto industry as a whole? I think it, uh, crypto got hit hard. I think Bitcoin, for the most part, was mostly fine, right? So, and so I think there's a distinction there, right? So Web3, there's kind of a big scare in the market. You had these FTT tokens on Ethereum that got severely affected. I think what this does as a whole for, for crypto is that if regulators were kind of sitting back and kind of wait and see, you know, this, this didn't just become like a regulatory conversation. It became a political conversation. You've got the SBF, who's the, second largest donor to the Biden campaign parading around DC and this now looks like mud in the in their face and so is the hammer going to come down on he was trying to regulate defi out of the United States right and so is that what they're going to continue to do are they going to re- revise that again i think it's going to be in the forefront of the conversation and i think the forefront of the conversation for the regulators in DC is going to be and this is probably what they talked about on Monday morning is how do, how do we protect consumers and how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Instead of the conversation of how do we make sure that regulation can happen properly in the United States? How can we open things to be done in the United States instead of the majority, 95% of the trading activity happening offshore, right? Because that's what's happening right now is you're getting the majority going offshore because there's regulatory clarity in the United States. And so what would I do if I was a regulator? Well, I would say... Like, you, I'd put regulatory, like, things in there that, you know, everyone needs to custody their own coins, right? Like, that's, that's what I would do. But, you know, no one in the right, that's not going to happen, right? So that's my opinion on what's going to happen over the next little while. But I don't know, like, how do you guys feel like crypto has changed over the last, like, week? Like, what is the general sentiment that you guys have been feeling from, from the crypto market? Um, maybe, Soham, you want to go? I think uh, something you hit a little bit earlier was something I was thinking about as well. Where you kind of like compare like, oh, is uh, crypto in general is like a, a security or like a, a commodity, right? And I think one thing I, I know as like a, your Bitcoin maximum, you probably know Michael Saylor, right? It's like, uh, yeah, like a point he always made that I always like think about well is with something like Bitcoin, you can't make anything more of. So that's like more close to a property. It's like a physical thing you can't have anymore versus like a lot of these like new coins that are coming in with FTT everything. Like the people behind it, they can print more at any point. And the thing is, like, in terms of, like, actual stocks as well, when you, like, uh, create more stocks and you pay, the market cap of it does not increase, right? It's just the number of things that are, like, out there in the market kind of increase. So I think, like, the first point of contact kind of has to be, like, addressing just that in general. Just, like, the definition is this security, is it a commodity, 
And then like, that's where we can get the regulation actually based on, cause we have a lot of like precedent when it comes to like, Oh, commodity, how to regulate commodities, how to regulate securities. Like the SC does a big job when it comes to that too. Right. You bring up a really good point because like what's not clear right now is like CFTC deals with commodities and mm-hmm. SEC deals with obviously securities, but they haven't gone down a list and said, okay, well, this is a security and this is a commodity. And maybe these ones are kind of in between and we'll settle that in court. But they, they just haven't gone down the list and said, oh, this is this and this is that. And so that ends up with, that just goes off offshore and you get FTX. So and on um, top of that, I, I, just, I think that's, that, that's a big problem. Yeah, that and then just the fact that like anyone kind of make their own crypto at any point, right? So like they can't even try to keep up if they wanted to. I don't know. I feel like this is maybe something that like, your average person should think about is, you know, if I'm investing in this token, what is this token doing and who is creating this token and who is the owner of it, right? The whole point of, I think, Bitcoin was to remove the the kind of the concept of money printing and the central bank and to have a fixed supply. And yet we're reverting back to the same problems that exist in traditional finance and the Mm -hmm. reserve banking system that we have there. And so, you know, if if we're all going to go jump around and play with tokens. What, you know, what was the point of the whole thing? And so, <laughs> yeah, I did read Twitter. I mean, there is a, the Fed is launching a digital dollar pilot with Citibank, Bank of America, I think 12 other banks, right? So like the timing is very suspicious, but I'm assuming they planned it beforehand, but timing is very on time here. So Matt, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. I remember Edward Snowden tweeted about this. And I think he wrote, it begins, right? And so what does that mean? If what What begins? I mean, it's always good to see different banks playing around with technology. I mean, they need to implement basic authentication into most of their platforms. But it begins. What does that mean? Well, it's probably looking at, he probably is referring to it begins the creation of a potential CBDC. For those that don't know, what what is a CBDC? A central bank digital currency. And there's a lot of talk in Twitter about like, what are the concerns of a government that's able to go from a mostly cash society to a completely digital society and now a completely digital dollar. And what does that mean? What does that mean for everybody? And so I'm curious to know, like, and look at, well, what specific features are they implementing? My understanding of what they were doing with this pilot was it was mostly just for settlement. They were just trying to settle things within banks. But what's the end game of that? Okay, well, you could imagine a future where banks are coming together or the central bank is just issuing, you know, some type of currency on a blockchain that now has programmability. And so, you know, instead of them having to go to the bank and say, hey, we're going to freeze your bank account, they can just do that programmatically, right? Or they can put spending conditions that says, oh, you have this many carbon credits. And so you you used up those carbon credits this month. And so you can't spend anymore. And so it's scary. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just settlement. But you know, I think we need to work actively to make sure that CBDC is not the future and that we fight for freedom currency instead of currency that controls the population. So that was my thoughts on that. What were your thoughts on that one, George? Well, I think privacy is top of mind. Like uh, if the central government, any central government makes like their central government type digital currency, there's just always the, the question is like, should you actually use it, right? It's not cash. And there's a reason why people use cash and prefer cash. And you can argue that a digital currency I don't know if that would be on a blockchain. I'm assuming it would be on the blockchain. Well, it basically keeps track of every move that you make, right? Like there's already an argument that right now with the address scanners and stuff, you already don't have privacy in Web3. Any transaction that you make, it's actually tracked by millions of people and people can see exactly where you send money to or receive money from, right? So that's already very scary and loss of privacy, I think too many. And I would just add like the digital central bank's currency is probably going to make it worse. It's probably going to make us have less currencies. And the question is like, 
no privacy, I mean, and also like when there's a central bank controlling all digital currencies, it means the start of the monopoly, right? It starts with how the Fed is already affecting the global economy by raising rates. So will that bring things also to the crypto space? Will there be a central player that would just be watching everything that we do with crypto assets? So that's my main concern. The idea, I, I guess, is a good idea, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's all about implementation. And I think like, obviously, there's a lot of people rooting that hoping that like, you know, what is the future of the world reserve currency? You know, USD isn't going to be the world reserve currency forever. I don't think Bitcoin's ready yet. It's not ready. It's not ready to scale, right? There's lots we need to do. But if it is some type of digital dollar, you know, what what happens to the privacy of users? Now, the privacy is, an, is one element of it. But censorship resistance, I think, is a very important element. And if this becomes a trend worldwide, I think one of the really important properties of Bitcoin is obviously the censorship resistance aspects. Because if you live in a country where your government is oppressive to you, you need the means to be able to fight back against your government, right? And so if everyone's just using a central bank digital currency, then you don't have that power because they cut you off at the knee and say, your funds are frozen. And so I think that's another important element that needs to be thought through in addition to privacy. Because if you're talking about privacy, Bitcoin's not even that private, right? You know, you do things on chain, there's chain analysis, you do things on Lightning Network, okay, maybe it's a bit more private. But, you know, Bitcoin isn't winning the privacy game. There's lots of tools that are trying to make it more private over time, but it's not winning at that. The, the most important element, I think, is censorship resistance. So, I don't know, we'll just have to see, like, what does that evolve to? And it begins, well, how does it end? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I just, think, I just want to say one thing. I think you bring up a really good point about uh, cryptos in general, like one of the big use cases. I remember when like the Ukraine-Russia war first began, the people that are trying to flee Ukraine, if you have like a, something offline like Bitcoins, you can literally take your whole life savings and just go to a different country. Like yes. like that validity as a use case of crypto is something that's so powerful beyond like, anything we've really even had in history. Imagine trying to carry gold or like actual cash or trying to go to the bank or where they can just freeze your assets. That's actually a really great point. Like, I remember the stories of like people in Venezuela that were trying to flee their country and with like, you know, bags of gold. Barrels of cash, right? Yeah, or barrels of cash or literal gold and trying to leave the country and it gets confiscated. And it's like, wow, you know, like this is such a powerful thing. 12 words and you can bring your wealth anywhere worldwide. Like, that's such a powerful thing that's never existed in the history of humanity. And so, you know, maybe that means that for the first time, People who are fleeing disasters don't have to rebuild their entire wealth. Maybe they're able to bring it with them. And so that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to ask, like, there's obviously boom and busts, I guess, in crypto. There's like big players going bust all the time. I mean, it's not the first time. There's Luna in June. And and obviously, there's something worse even before that, right? The Fed raised interest rates. Companies are already busting. So, I mean, those companies have already gone. Let's say all the big players are gone. Like, Matt, what will happen to crypto afterwards? Will it just be like some new players with you know more user-friendly or security-friendly terms is going to come up and be the new centralized players? Or do you think this is going to be something else? I mean, I think like everyone's going to have to take a good look at, especially the like the lending tools that are out there. You know, there was all these kind of tools back in the day and during the boom cycle, it was like get yield on your Bitcoin, right? That was a large thing. Lots of podcasts were focused on that. You know, go make yield at BlockFi, go make yield at Celsius. And the joke that we would say at the time was 8% yield you'll never see on Bitcoin. You'll, you'll never see again, you know? And, and so it's like, I think there's going to be a real question of what does yield mean? What does it mean to make yield in these different centralized tools? And I think everybody wants a free lunch, 
right? But there's no, there's no free lunch in Bitcoin. And part of it too is also that if, if you're using something like a currency, right, there's kind of the expectation that there's going to be inflation. And so you need to beat inflation by making yield. But in, in Bitcoin, that's a different paradigm. So I think there's going to be a big question in the market of like, all of these different yield-bearing tools and the new ones that are going to pop up, I think people are going to ask a, a very hard question of. That's lending, right? So I think lending obviously has seen a, a you know a huge falter there occur. Are there going to be new members? Are people going to forget? Probably, right? People have a short memory. We're probably going to say the same things again and everyone's going to be warning about this. And then in 10 years, maybe we have the same thing. I don't know. Maybe it'll be more regulated. But then we come to the question of the exchanges, right? And so, and so you have the exchanges that are out there and some of them are not with us anymore and some of them are. And I think it's going to be a big question of like, what are the expectations of consumers on exchanges? And what are also going to be the behaviors of people as well, of the people that have just been through this cataclysmic event for crypto? Is there going to be a situation where people finally come to their senses and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to use an exchange like a public bathroom. I'm going to get in, I'm going to trade, and I'm going to get out. Or is it going to be a situation where they're they're going to make the same mistakes? And so, you know, I hope that it's a situation where people are a lot more wary and they start to self-custody their assets. But, you know, people may forget. And so, you know, I don't think we're done with the pain that's going to occur. I think that the same boom bust cycle is probably going to happen again, but maybe people get a little smarter this time. And maybe there's more, you know, Bitcoiners that are created the next time round. So yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on like what we're going to see like next in crypto? Like what do you feel like is the sentiment right now? I think uh, one thing you kind of hit on that I really like is I feel like there's always that whole thing where anytime there start, starts to become a boom and the more people that enter it, there becomes all these use cases. Like you had mentioned like the shit coins, like NFT, stuff like that, that maybe don't have as much of a validity. And like right now we're in the bus free, but I still think that crypto sun is definitely going to survive, but the boom is going to start up a lot sooner than people think just because there was like a whole thing a couple of years ago when I was reading is that instead of gold, like something that people are thinking is like an anti-liquidity thing against like the S&P 500 that's like inverse relationship that, oh, Bitcoin should be going up while the S&P goes down. So that kind of theory starts coming into place and like that boom happens again. While the markets are tanking with like the way the interest rates are coming, I could see that. Yeah, like, yeah, like, there'd be like these other use cases like NFTs and everything that kind of went to almost zero basically as soon as the balloon popped. You bring up a really good point. Like in the boom by cycle of Bitcoin, you know, we, we see, so you got something that goes down like 10% in a day. That's nothing. We saw that with stocks this time, you know, like, right. And so, so, you know, we saw that with meta. And so it's like, all my like Bitcoin friends were sitting there like kind of laughing, like, my gosh, like that, you know, the traditional markets are seeing the same volatility. But I think you're absolutely right that every boom bust cycle, there is this kind of like the new thing on the block, right? The last, yeah. last, last time it was NFTs. Before that, it was ICOs. And then people get smarter and then realize, hey, you know, this is kind of hopium. You know, this isn't, you know, kind of the real deal. And they get drawn over to, you know, maybe over to Bitcoin and they become more conservative and they kind of understand the risks that are involved. And that happens every boom bust cycle. Maybe the boom bust cycle is a feature, not a bug, Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. We do have about 10 minutes left. I do want us to switch topic a little bit to another big news item that you guys probably guess what I'm about to speak about. Twitter, right? So Elon Musk bought Twitter. So many interesting developments that happened, which I, I think our audience is all caught up by now. The latest development, I think, is last night, he sent an email to everyone while remaining employees at Twitter, the the ones after you know the 50% layoffs, saying that you know like the, the culture of Twitter is going to change dramatically. You're expected to work super long hours and super intense time. So if you are decided you are going to stay, you have until Thursday afternoon, 5 p.m. Eastern time to fill this Google form. 
and enter your name. If you don't by then, you'll receive a severance package, three months of severance. Uh, so that's the latest important to bring to our audiences. Um, but everyone know what happened before that. So just in terms of that, Matt, let's go first. Like, what do you think will happen for the severance package? A lot of people are, are really harping on Elon Musk these days on like the changes that he's made at Twitter. And you can see it from both sides. You can see that you've had Twitter employees that have been there for you know 10 years and they've been a core part and now they're leaving. The head of compliance is leaving. The head of security is leaving. And what does that mean for user data? All these different things. But on the other hand, you know, I think for a while, Silicon Valley has been living in kind of dream world. And, you know, and people have been, you've been sitting there with you know, a significant number of people that exist in the Twitter organization when it's not even profitable. You know, you can say what you wish about Google and Facebook, but they're very profitable businesses and they've had a nice trajectory over the past 10 years. But Twitter has fluctuated between profitability and losses. And so to me, it seems like maybe the focus of Twitter when, when Elon Musk came in and obviously there weren't, you know, there were people that weren't happy with what happened. But there wasn't enough focus on profitability when he came in and now he's making these massive changes. And so, you know, at a certain point, I feel like it's necessary to put this kind of pressure in. Is he doing everything perfect? Obviously not. But, you know, you need to have some level of pressure in order to create something of value and kind of turn the ship around from unprofitability. And so I think it's necessary to a certain extent. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Soham? No, I think you kind of hit the hammer on the nail there. Like, as a use case, I think Twitter is very vital. We saw, like, even, like, SBF, like, his apology was on Twitter. Like, you know, like, Twitter is the town hall of the people. Like, you get access to millions of people right away. And then, like, uh, Elon buying it. I've kind of learned never to doubt Elon. Like, PayPal was supposed to fail. Tesla was supposed to fail. SpaceX was supposed to fail. I think the boring company, whatever other stuff he's doing was supposed to fail, too. So, and, like, he learns from iteration. Yeah, like, I think, like, a lot of, like, his... $8 or $20, whatever you want to charge for the check mark. That definitely was a big bust. But like, yeah, he's going to evolve for sure. But the fact that like there has to be like Twitter has to be a profitable company because if Twitter is not a going concern, there's going to be the whole concern as like a society because we do need that freedom of press. We need people like, you know, like us being journalists, kind of stuff like that, too. I'm also excited to see like what happens in terms of censorship, because I think there was like a lot of a big conversation of what was happening with censorship. And now that's, you know, apparently changing with Elon Musk. And so I think that's an exciting change. And we'll see how that plays out. Are things going to mess up? We'll see. And I do agree, like it is the town hall of of the world. It's the town hall of Bitcoin, of crypto. Mm -hmm. And so like we need that for these conversations to happen. So he's talking about bankruptcy soon. If things don't turn around, well, hopefully that doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I kind of agree with you guys. I do have a counterpoint. I guess it's important to bring out. Uh, the first thing is like the deal itself, right? Like when you started Tesla and SpaceX, it was very different times. The first of all, it was economically better times than where we are now, which is where the bottom of the lake, so to speak, for tech is super difficult to raise additional capital. And even if you do, you probably have super high interest rates. I heard, I, mean, I don't know if it's confirmed, but I heard Twitter is going to pay a billion dollars a year in interests. And for a company that is not profitable at all, how can you pay a billion dollars a year? Uh, isn't it Elon Musk that's paying that out? I think he owes the interest on it because he bought Twitter himself, I believe anyway. And so I think part of his incentive for getting Twitter to be profitable is like, if it's just breaking even, then Elon Musk is screwed, right? With his, yeah. with his existing loans. I believe that's correct. I'm not positive. And so, and so not only does it need to break even, but it needs to make a significant profit for him to be out of the, out of the red there. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's super difficult to turn it around because it's no longer a startup, right? It's a very established company. It hasn't made money for like 10 plus years. And I think the challenge is like, we don't really know how much time is there left, right? I'm assuming it's like very, very pressing matter 
Like we don't really know how much time there's left for them to make those changes, right? Like from what we're seeing on the outside, it doesn't look like they have that much time. And it's, you know, obviously bought at a very significant premium, right? Question just like, okay, Mm -hmm. are there enough time to turn this ship around? And if not, I think it'll just be be super bad for Tesla, but super bad for Elon Musk. But, you know, again, I think there are ways to turn Twitter profitable. Uh, I do know he's considering like a wallet. So making Twitter a bit of like a cash app functionalities as well, which I think is super interesting. But maybe even Well, I think they implemented like um like Bitcoin into Twitter using Strike, I believe. Like you could make like lightning payments. I think Jack Dorsey implemented that, which is cool. Jack Dorsey is obviously a big Bitcoiner and you know he's building block and Square is doing interesting things with Bitcoin Lightning. And so it'll be interesting to see if they expand upon that. You know, Strike is only available in the United States. So we as, as Canadians obviously don't see it and we don't get to experience it and test it out. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what monetization do they put in place and what do they do to kind of turn the ship around. They've already like laid off lots of people, which is obviously extending runway significantly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what do they do to sh- turn the ship around and what kind of unique things do they implement and how fast do they iterate now versus before we've already seen like that they've done like lots of iterations over like the last month and tried things so i don't know that's that's exciting to see we'll see if it works <laughs> yeah i do wonder what you guys think about the twitter blue which which i think is still coming up like, it got paused i think last week but i'm hearing that it is coming back online maybe later this week or next week so i guess so what are your general views about twitter blue the subscription service uh, it's about eight dollars a month as like a overall, like, uh, it's like looking at a big picture. I think like it was a good idea, but then yeah, you just start seeing like those use cases. Yeah. People create parity accounts and like actual stocks start plummeting. Those stocks are in like, you know, mutual funds and stuff of people's savings, retirement. I think there's definitely like a case where Elon came in saying, Oh, no censorship. And then he kind of found that, Oh, there has to be some kind of censor. You have to say you're a parity account, even if you have the blue check mark and stuff. So. I just think this is a big mess right now. I agree with the general concept that you should charge for that because if you're valid enough to have a blue check mark, you can probably afford $8 a month. And if you can't, then I don't know how much that blue check mark really means to you. Like that was kind of my opinion on that. But overall, I don't know how he's going to be implemented where parody accounts still don't get made. So I'm just kind of interested to see how that's going to go. Well, I think like an interesting question there is like, are they going to implement KYC? So you have all these, like, I think one of the interesting things on Twitter is you have lots of anonymous folk, pseudo-anonymous folk that have generated a significant following. This is especially relevant in crypto and is particularly in the Bitcoin space that have a huge following and kind of revered. And then are they going to require those folks in order to get a blue check mark to Mm -hmm. actually identify themselves? And so you have that. And then you also have like all the folks that apparently behind the scenes paid like, what, $15,000 to get a blue check mark on the old system. I don't know if you guys heard about that. People used to just like sell, like Twitter engineers used to just sell that blue check mark, right, to people for like 15 Yeah, yeah, under the table, they want under charge. the table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's so many people that are pissed about that. Hey, I had a blue check mark because I paid 15 grand for the damn thing under the table. And now you got, you're putting it up for eight, eight bucks a month, right? So, so I don't know. You, I think you've got some people that are annoyed about that. And then you've got the AOC out there saying, Oh, this is an anti free speech. And then Elon Musk replies, you'll pay eight dollars, right? It was the hilarious meme. <laughs> so I don't know. Like we'll. We'll see what happens with that. I mean, maybe I get the sense that advertisers are, are, it's an uneasy place, right? It's like, there's a lot of, a lot of things happen. There's a lot of things kind of happening all over the place. I think he's smart to bring everyone in in person because 
And I think people were really annoyed about that. You know, we're a remote company first. You know, we're a social media company. We expect to be able to work remotely and you're expecting us to come to the office. But with so many people laid off, I think it's essential to be able to reorganize and come together and figure out everything before, mm-hmm. like, even if he wasn't going to make it, even if he was going to return to remote long term, like at least have everyone in the same place now so that you can reorganize when all these changes have occurred. So it's going to be tough because it's a turbulent time. But he, I know Elon Musk seems to do yeah. well in turbulent times, you know? <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, uh, I think that's a super interesting point. But I do have a question, I guess, like maybe you guys can help me answer. I think I might know the answer, but why is Facebook as a service, like Facebook itself, so valuable to advertisers. And why does it just essentially print money? Whereas Twitter kind of just doesn't have the grasp of like ad revenue. Like they're so reliant on a few advertisers. Whereas I guess Facebook has like millions of advertisers, I'm assuming. Like what's your take on? I think like one of my questions is like, what's the user base of Facebook versus Twitter? First off, I think like the user base of Twitter is much lower, isn't it? I'm not sure to be honest. I think Facebook got to the point where they could not add any more users. Everyone that wanted to be on Facebook was on Facebook. That's kind of one of the biggest reasons why Mark wanted to like shift gears as well to Meta, right? Like versus, yeah, yeah, Twitter definitely has like a much lower user base. I guess the other thing as well is that like Twitter is a, a town hall and Facebook is local individualized communities, right? And so and I think Facebook probably has a lar- much larger user base. And so I suspect that's one of the reasons why it was easier to monetize something like Facebook, because if you're able to target certain people with certain advertisements on this, you know, maybe they collect more data, maybe people talk, you know, post more personal things on Facebook that they're able to target. Uh, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. What, what are your thoughts, George? Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear that YouTube is profitable for the past few quarters. I, I just don't call me on that. I heard it from a friend working at YouTube. He said yeah. YouTube has been profitable for a couple quarters. So I was super surprised because they also have a subscription service called YouTube. I think it used to be mm-hmm. called YouTube Red. Now it's called YouTube Premium that no yeah. one I know is subscribed to. But somehow <laughs> I guess it still makes some revenue, uh, you know, part of it at least. So I, I'm surprised to see YouTube turning a profit. So I think if I YouTube think- can turn a profit, maybe Twitter can too. But I also think YouTube kind of scaled the amount of ads they gave, right? Like one, they started putting 15 second ads. They put in the middle of videos as well now. And they put two ads at the beginning. So I, I can see how like they start being able to scale through just the sheer number of ads they start putting into their videos. Yeah, I guess that's another thing too is like, where can you put the ads, right? Like so on Twitter, it really interrupts the process if you're putting exactly. ads there. And there's not that much like useful information to advertisers that they can't see from Twitter being public in the first place. And so... I think it, I don't know, it just seems like a harder medium to, to monetize. Yeah. Plus, I think like the reason why like TikTok, for example, is able to scale so fast. It's just like how much of the algorithm kind of caters to you on a personal level, right? Like Twitter is very, it doesn't really cater to you personal versus how much, who you follow. TikTok and even like Facebook, like they kind of, and Instagram, like, you know, reels on, on the background, they kind of try to cater and give you content, like discover, like stuff you wouldn't have like searched up. Twitter kind of seems like whatever you've searched up, they'll show you that. Mm. It's kind of like Twitter's like kind of trying to monetize an RSS feed, you know, <laughs> which like if you were to just sit there and say, hey, I'm going to monetize an RSS feed. People would say, what? Like that doesn't make any sense. But that that's basically what Twitter is, which is probably why it's, you know, more, more difficult to monetize. I, I don't know. That's a fair point. So, um, yeah, prediction time. I guess let's try to do that. Where do you think Twitter will be, let's say, six months from now? Uh, Matt, do you want to start? Well, what do you say? There's like there's a year, the year to bankruptcy or something. Six months from that, I think like in six months, we're either going to see like some real successes on Twitter happening, or we're going to see a situation where 
it's a huge downfall. I, honestly, I think he's going to turn around. And I think, I honestly, I think we're going to have the same Twitter experience we have now with maybe a, a few extra features here and there. I don't know. That's my, that's my prediction. What do you think, Saham? I definitely, I'm always going to be like, I'll bet on, like, I trust Elon as much as I trust Tom Brady. Like, I think Elon can always pull it up in the fourth quarter. So I can't see, like, Twitter going bankrupt even in that one-year time frame. But in general, like, what I think Twitter itself would become, I could kind of see Elon taking, like, a WeChat type of approach where, like, yeah, you said, like, the monetization of it, like a payment service, just a few, like, add, like, a little bit of, like, add-in services on top of that, on top of just, like, being a news feed as well. I think for myself, I hope he can turn it around. I'm just saying, like, mm. this time the economics are a little bit against him. And we really want to see, like, I really want to see, yeah, probably not, but I really want to see what's really happening inside of, like, Twitter. What's their balance sheet looking like? How much are they losing a day? I think you, Elon was saying before the layoff was $4 million loss a day. $4 million oh. loss a day. That was insane. Hopefully, he can stop the burn. I think he's canceling lunch, which personally I agree with. If you're mm-hmm. fighting for survival, then you should cancel lunch, free lunch. Uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So I really want to see how those cost cutting can go. And I think if he can cut a lot of costs and turn some advertisers around, I think those are just staying on the sidelines. They're not really going to other platforms. He could save mm-hmm. it. Um, and I want to see like how he can turn it around. Yeah. And I think he's pulling all nighters, uh, which I respect something mm-hmm. I cannot do. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess that will be, you know, a wrap for today's episode. Uh, we almost keep going for an hour. So really respect for, you know, Soham and Matt for sticking with us. Thank you guys so much. Uh, hopefully we can see you guys next week. We can do another round. Yeah, hopefully the next week and this week will be just as much news as we did the previous week. So thank you guys so much. See you guys next week.